This podcast is about the earliest signs of an emerging trafficking empire and the corrupt politicians that profited from it. It is about the decades of abuse of minority communities disguised as public policies. It is about that system that nurtured an uncontrollable monster that continues to birth ultra-violent and merciless reapers. Understanding the war on drugs and its resulting insurgency is critical in understanding the Mexico we know today. This is Demoler. Mexico is the third largest producer of opium in the world, just behind Afghanistan and Myanmar. In just three months, the armed forces destroyed over 300,000 poppy plantations across the country. But long before the flower fueled a multi-billion dollar transnational trafficking network, it was an ancient medical remedy used from the ancient Egyptians to the Chinese. The Sumerians called it the plant of joy. It became a godsend for the wounded in the theater of war. But how did this so-called plant of joy make its way to Mexico? Covering the rise of opium trafficking in this country would be incomplete without discussing the work of Luis Astorga, a Culiacan Sinaloa native and doctor in sociology. His research has documented the rise of opium, marijuana, and cocaine in Mexico. He tells us that the earliest record of the opium poppy in Mexico is in 1886, and it is linked to Chinese immigration during the end of the 19th century. In the 1860s, skilled, low-wage Chinese laborers arrived in Mexico after then-President Porfirio Diaz promoted the idea. They settled in the northwest of the country, in states like Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, and Baja California, but the majority of them settled in Sinaloa. Other Chinese immigrants who wanted to settle in the United States were also forced to remain in Mexico after the U.S. implemented the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. In 1899, China and Mexico signed the Treaty of Amity, Commerce and Navigation to promote free travel between both nations. By 1910, the number of Chinese immigrants had risen to 13,200. Ten years later, they had become the second largest immigrant community in Mexico, second to the Spanish, and their community spread across nearly every state. With their move, the Chinese brought not only trade skills and philosophy, but also poppy seeds, since opium was a widely used recreational drug in China. And with those seeds, they brought the know-how of the production and consumption of the opiate. Initially, Astorga writes, their production was small-scale, nearly limited to the social traditions of the opium den. But not long after, Chinese immigrants built a lucrative business harvesting opium for Chinese dealers in the U.S. Much of this product was smuggled from Mexicali, Baja California, to Calexico on the U.S. side through a network of underground tunnels known as La Chinesca. La Chinesca was initially used to escape the sweltering heat, it would soon be used for a more profitable business. During the U.S. Prohibition era, the network of tunnels were used to allow bootleggers to run liquor into the U.S. and allow Americans access to the underground brothels and opium dens. 
A year into the Mexican Revolution in 1911, the revolutionary forces of the newly elected president, Francisco Madero, stoked Asian hatred. That hatred culminated in the Torreon massacre in which 303 mainly Chinese immigrants were murdered by around 2,000 of Madero's troops in the state of Coahuila. After the massacre, more incidents of racist attacks were reported across northern states from Sonora to Tamaulipas. The racism had become so pervasive, even in the political sphere, that the Treaty of Amity was revoked. In 1922, a Sinaloa newspaper published that poppy plantations would be banned in the state, but locally, it was understood that the measure would only apply to Chinese minorities. Two years later, the Sinaloa Anti-Chinese Committee was formed in Culiacán. The committee used the Chinese's consumption of opium as a pretext to expel them from the four. But the cultural racism turned into actual expulsions. Not long after, members of the committee organized Chinese hunting parties. Members would capture them, bind them by their hands and feet, and confine them into cages. They would then be taken to what became a de facto clandestine prison, a house in Culiacán called Dos de Abril, in front of Hotel del Mayo. From this makeshift prison, the Chinese cargo was smuggled by railway to Acaponeta, Nayarit. Eventually, train operators in Acaponeta began rejecting the massive influx of displaced Chinese migrants and began sending them further down south to the state of Chiapas. This is how the first generation of Chinese communities in Chiapas was born, dedicated to working in coffee fields. The propaganda against the Chinese demonized them for their consumption of opium. Mexican gangsters and smugglers also began to participate and perpetuate Asian racism across the country, even funding some of those campaigns. And while some of the earliest archives of opium dens in Mexico are attributed to Chinese minorities, they were not the only ones engaged in the business. The dens were also popular in Mexico City, Ciudad Juarez, Mexicali, Tampico, and Tijuana, and plantations existed in Xochimilco, Sonora, Michoacán, Guanajuato, and Jalisco. Even that same Sinaloa newspaper wrote in 1926 that an opium den in Mazatlán for local Mexicans was guarded by authorities. Manuel Lascano, a university student at the time, participated in anti-Chinese campaigns and protests. Lascano went on to become the Sinaloa Attorney General for three terms. In his memoir, Una Vida en la Vida Sinaloense, Lascano shared his regret for having participated in the campaigns. In that memoir, he compared the treatment of the Chinese to that of the Jews in Europe. Quote, We have seen films of the brutal repression that the Jews were subjected to, and scenes of how they were transported like animals. Well, the same thing happened in Sinaloa, but with the Chinese. Seeing the images in real life was overwhelming." Unquote. Whatever it was, the mass targeting of Chinese minorities drove them away. The lucky ones were forcibly expelled back to China or hid in La Chinesca, Mexicali's underground tunnels. But many more were killed. From 1926 to 1940, the number of Chinese immigrants in Mexico had fallen from over 24,000 to a mere 5,000. Many of those who had secretly funded those violent campaigns did so with the express intent of taking over the Chinese opium monopoly.
and after their mass expulsion, that wasn't very difficult. Their ouster created a vacuum and disrupted their old smuggling networks, allowing for new growers to take over the opium market. In his book, The Dope, Benjamin T. Smith tells us that in the 1940s, figures within the American-Italian Mafia moved south and attempted to exploit Mexico's opium trade. By the 1950s and 1960s, Corsican mobsters used the country as a heroin transshipment point to send product up north after the Americans tightened their East Coast port controls. But these syndicates never managed to establish a foothold. It took more than bribes and illustrious contacts to get ahead in Mexican politics. And for Mexican authorities, taking down a foreign operation was preferential over a domestic one. At this rate, it was easier to establish a massive international drug industry in Europe than it was south of the US border. So after the Chinese were dethroned and foreign syndicates fought for a share, more Mexican farmers started taking up opium farming. Sonora and Sinaloa natives became the major stakeholders in the rising market. It was in Badiraguato, Sinaloa, the birthplace of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, where the hub for opium began to form. From there, traders would transport their merchandise to the border cities of Nogales, Mexicali, and Tijuana via an agricultural Pacific Railroad. As Astorga explains, anybody could be a trafficker. The vocation had not yet turned into the cultural emblem it is now. For Astorga, trafficking coexisted with local communities because the drugs were produced for the market abroad, not a domestic one. While Mexico was ascending into the transnational drug market, domestic abuse of narcotics was low. The use of morphine, heroin, and cocaine were considered American and European vices learned during World War I, or limited to artists and the middle class while opium smoking was considered to be the vice of Chinese minorities. Addiction numbers in Mexico City were so small that the only data comes from a combination of private hospitals, state asylums, and city jails, which amount to 458 addicts between 1920 and 1924. For comparison, according to figures from the 1970s, some of the earliest reliable data on addiction the CIA estimated that there were around 450,000 heroin addicts in the U.S., and this is just a conservative figure. Other reports cite up to 600,000, but during that same time, there was almost no evidence of heroin use in Mexico. For the traffickers, their main market was up north. Astorga adds that another reason that trafficking coexisted within Mexican society was a low level of violence because the trade was primarily run along family lines. There was room for everybody in the drug business, he wrote, so it was not necessary to fight to the death to get a share of the market. Astorga writes that even Culiacan newspapers were writing editorials petitioning the United Nations for permission to cultivate poppy in Sinaloa, like in Yugoslavia, India, Turkey, and Iran. It would be a good source of work and wealth, they argued. And while the growing of poppies was illegal on paper, the cultivation continued in the states of Sinaloa, Guerrero, Chiapas, and Veracruz. Traffickers from the northwestern regions were making fortunes smuggling their product to the U.S. through the border towns of Nogales, Mexicali, Tijuana, and Ciudad Juarez. Trafficking became so commonplace that even politicians and federal authorities were dipping their fingers in the lucrative venture. 
Enter Colonel Esteban Cantu, the Baja California governor between 1916 and 1920. Cantu was in a privileged position. Most of his illicit border trade was run through corridors in Mexicali and Tijuana, and the country's booming vice economy that catered to thirsty Americans was sitting right at his doorstep. Cantu began charging brothels, bars, and casinos a monthly tax. This would become one of the first records of a protection racket. Then, he started taxing the narcotics trade. He first taxed the opium importers, then the Chinese-run opium refineries, then the sellers, then the opium dens. Hey y'all, we hope you're enjoying the episode. Just interrupting here to let you know that everything that we do is completely independent. We're not sponsored by anyone. We're powered by our own blood, sweat, and Mexican tears. So if you like what we're doing and want to help us do more, please consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early released episodes, bonus content, episode photos, maps and infographics, and anything else that we can come up with. You can find the link in our show notes or social media platforms. Back to the episode. In 1916, when new president Venustiano Carranza banned the sale of opium entirely, Cantu ordered all opium to be seized and opium dens be closed. On the surface, Cantu was abiding by federal laws and stamping out the vice, while underneath, in the underbelly of the drug world, he was profiting from the growing beast. According to records accessed by Astorga, U.S. Customs officials from Los Angeles tracked a syndicate of Chinese-Mexicans smuggling opium from Tijuana. The syndicate delivered it to a Chinese man based in the U.S. named Duong Xifi, who had connections to a so-called David Goldbaum. Goldbaum reportedly paid our very own Colonel Esteban Cantu a whopping $45,000 up front, which amounts to nearly $1.2 million today, for rights to traffic through his plaza and another $10,000 monthly, over $250,000 today, for immunity. The report added that Cantu would resell what he seized from drug traffickers who had not earned their right, or at least paid their dues, to traffic through his area. The U.S. Customs officials sent the report to Washington with the backing of the Treasury. But the State Department did nothing. A case was never raised against Cantu or his American accomplice. On the contrary, Cantu was applauded by U.S. officials for his supposed crackdowns on the illegal vice. In 1917, he was invited by San Diego officials as a guest of honor. On the one hand, the U.S. ardently opposed what it considered to be the drugs of the degenerates, while turning a blind eye to the massive profiting power it generated. It was turning into a well-oiled machine that functioned on exorbitant kickbacks and connections. During his first days as an attorney general of Sinaloa in 1945, Lascano received a report that a small drug factory was operating in Culiacán with product from Badiraguato. The product, which was seized by authorities, made its way to the Department of Coordinated Health Services in the federal offices. To hide the contraband, Lascano says, it was common for the federal offices to declare the product as harmless elephant tree gum known as Copalquín. It was that simple. Opium gum entered federal offices as an illegal substance and exited rebranded with the seal of the state, and no trafficker stepped foot in a Sinaloa prison. Things started slowly, he wrote in his memoir. 
I like to think that people were not conscious of the harm that they were doing. In Coahuila, according to an investigation report sent by Special Agent Juan Requena to the Mexican Department of Public Health, the kingpin of opium trafficking was Antonio Wang Yin, a Chinese-Mexican trafficker. He rubbed shoulders with Governor Nosario Ortiz Garza, Torreon Mayor Francisco Ortiz Garza, and General Jesus Garcia Gutierrez, who oversaw military operations in the state. Yin was so influential and wealthy that he not only enjoyed the company of the highest echelons of society, but he also seemingly eluded the ingrained prejudices against the Chinese. Money and influence spoke, and they spoke loudly. The history of political corruption in the production, distribution, and sale of narcotics is as old as any other tale. It's not a new phenomenon, nor is the U.S. complicity in it. From the beginning, your purchasing power and connections determined whether laws applied to you. To survive in the underbelly, you needed contacts and reach. But what would this episode be without addressing our northern neighbor's policies, that of the United States? Uncle Sam's opium warrior, Hamilton Wright, spent his life convincing American lawmakers and citizens that opium was a foreign devil there to corrupt its men and subdue its women. Wright became the U.S. Opium Commissioner in 1908. The Shanghai Conference in 1909 for opium regulation was the beginning of the U.S. diplomacy on drugs. Wright got 13 nations to sign an accord, and by 1914, the Harrison Narcotics Act, which regulated and controlled opium consumption, was passed in U.S. Congress. And while the U.S. was championing itself as a pioneer of narcotics regulation, Mexico was far ahead of it. In 1916, President Venustiano Carranza banned the sale of opium entirely. A year later, the Mexican Constitution gave Congress control over any substance that would, quote, degenerate the race. Those substances were understood to be opium, morphine, ether, cocaine, and marijuana. By 1920, morphine and opium could only be legally imported with the state's permission. Further regulations were implemented in the subsequent years. On paper, Mexico appeared to be ardently denouncing the vice, but sharing a border with one of the largest drug consumers in the world proved that regulating the narcotic and stamping out its production was nearly impossible. The U.S.'s hardline approach on narcotics and other vices was difficult to enforce south of the border, at least initially. During the U.S. prohibition in the 1920s, savvy Mexican entrepreneurs found themselves at the forefront of another lucrative business opportunity, the smuggling of booze. One of them was Juan Nepomuceno Guerra, who made his money running whiskey into the U.S. through Tamaulipas and Nuevo León. Guerra, who I will discuss in later episodes, should be a familiar name to all of us. His legacy, the Gulf Cartel, continues to operate with immense firepower and hundreds of unrelenting foot soldiers. But the prohibition didn't last very long. When the key market commodity was legal again, the opportunistic Mexican entrepreneurs shifted their interests to the still lucrative drug market. The black market for narcotics jump-started again. After the Sinaloa opium market exploded in the 1940s, Lascano wrote about a supposed mystery buyer who paid in dollars for vast quantities, fueling rumors that this mystery buyer was the very U.S. government. 
The belief that the U.S. government encouraged the planting of marijuana and opium poppy in Sinaloa is so strong that to date, some Sinaloa residents hold that belief to be true. The myth, or rather conspiracy, as Ian Grillon writes in El Narco, goes that the U.S. government needed opium to make morphine for its soldiers in the Second World War. The traditional supply of the opiate was Turkey, but the war cut off supply lines as German U-boats sank merchant vessels in the Atlantic. The U.S. government then turned to the Sinaloa gummers and cut a deal with the Mexican government to let them grow their poppies. For Lascano, there was reason to believe that the U.S. was not only complicit in the trafficking, but actually sanctioned it. He recalls friends of his in the opium trade who would take their harvest to Nogales in a suitcase, dressed as peasants. According to him, they crossed the border effortlessly in view of customs. To investigate the claim, Grillo writes, an American journalist visited Sinaloa in 1950 and discovered that business and local government sources all confirmed the pact. He then contacted the U.S. Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was established in 1930 to better coordinate American anti-narcotic efforts. The FBN director, Harry Anslinger, a hardline drug warrior, ardently discredited the claim. The idea, of course, that a federal head, an ardent anti-drug warrior, would admit to an underground opium railroad is slim. But the denial and the lack of conclusive evidence from the Mexican side forces this claim to remain a myth or conspiracy. Whether U.S. opium meddling is a conspiracy or a hidden secret, the U.S. did intervene in Mexico's revolutionary narcotic reform. In 1939, Manuel Tello, a Mexican diplomat made a speech at the League of Nations in Geneva, arguing that the prohibition of marijuana and narcotics was not working. Instead, what the prohibition did was feed the black market and push up drug prices. He took this time to introduce Mexico's new drug law, which paved the way for a series of state-run morphine dispensaries. The dispensaries would provide morphine in a controlled and affordable setting and provide a space where addicts were treated rather than criminalized. The convention was attended by an array of narcotic emissaries, including Harry Anslinger. At the conference, Anslinger threatened that if Mexico approved this law, it would be an effective violation of all the previous international drug regulation conventions it had ratified. Tello was echoing what Dr. Leopoldo Salazar-Viniegra was attempting to reform in Mexico our attitude towards drugs. Salazar Viniegra was a doctor and director of La Castañeda General Asylum and founding member and president of the Mexican Society for Studies in Neurology and Psychiatry. Under President Lázaro Cárdenas, the new federal drug addiction regulations were approved, thereby authorizing doctors to prescribe narcotics to addicts. Pilot clinics were erected in Mexico City and began administering low doses of high-quality morphine to addicts at a low cost. The new clinics began to paralyze the illegal trade for drug traffickers who could not compete with the state's low rates. Government morphine was sold at a little more than three pesos per gram. In the street, the same amount was sold between 45 and 50 pesos. The government morphine was also high-quality and safe, where in the street, it was diluted with lactose, sodium carbonate, and quinine. 
a pure gram on the street would cost around 500 pesos. Salazar Viniegra stated that thanks to the dispensary, Maria Dolores Estevez Zulueta, known as Lola La Chata, one of the most famous drug traffickers at the time, and one of the characters who adorns the cover art of this series, was losing around 2,600 pesos a day. Even the once critical and conservative newspapers conceded that the clinics were working and agreed that addiction was better treated with medical and psychological support than with punitive measures. The clinics were so successful that by 1940, there were additional plans to open more. But within six months of their opening, the government overhauled the plan and repealed the regulation. The government stated morphine shortages caused by World War II prevented the plan from working, or at least that's what they claimed. In reality, it was the one and only Harry Anslinger, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who made it his life mission to ensure that all countries, especially the ones south of his border, were following the stringent drug policies it was implementing. By the 1930s, most of Mexico's medical morphine came from the U.S. Under the 1935 U.S. Narcotic Drugs Import and Export Act, only countries utilizing the drugs for medical and scientific purposes were allowed to buy. Under this act, Anslinger determined that Mexico's pilot clinics did not fulfill that regulation. Morphine sales to Mexico were immediately halted. In response, Mexico made a series of conciliatory efforts, including offering more transparency into its state-run dispensaries and even inviting American representatives to inspect poppy eradication campaigns. But the efforts did not work, and in May 1940, the U.S. stopped all exports of morphine and cocaine to Mexico. The Mexicans agreed to scrap their federal drug addiction regulations and scrap the state-run dispensary clinics. The following month, the old punitive legislation of 1931 was reintroduced, and the U.S. quietly resumed its morphine exports. Over the next decade, Mexico began adopting more hardline approaches to anti-narcotics, putting thousands in prison, and with that approach, getting closer to the U.S. And one thing was clear, criminalization shaped how we see the drug trade now. Users were criminalized as addicts, Sellers turned into dealers, and importers became traffickers, and the illicit trade continued to grow. But the tougher measures in one place created trafficking problems in another. The Mexican authorities' drug campaign strategies were not as successful as they claimed. The elimination of the poppy fields in Sinaloa pushed its legal cultivation to Jalisco, Nayarit, and Michoacán. Other small plantations surfaced in 10 other states. Then, the trafficking moved from the ground to the air. By the 1950s, opium smuggling by aircraft became so excessive that the Minister of Communications and Public Works suspended commercial flights in some airfields in Sinaloa, Sonora, Chihuahua, and Durango, and closed the aviation school in Culiacán. A former pilot and flight instructor who admitted to often transporting opium on his plane revealed that national commercial airline companies had done it on a far bigger scale. Reports from the 1960s estimated that there were 300 clandestine airfields in northern Mexico alone. In that decade, Interpol revealed that Mexico had surpassed Cuba in transatlantic narcotics trafficking. 
And for many more decades, opium continued to be the main source of revenue for traffickers in Mexico. It is this very flower that allowed communities that lived in rural, roadless areas to own hummers and climb out of poverty. It is also this very flower that helped transform Mexico from a drug smuggling haven to an open air gravesite. But the flower didn't turn into such a source of pain alone, nor by virtue. It was fueled by a greedy system that rewarded allies and targeted rivals while holding its people hostage. And it's no secret that if Mexican authorities really wanted to eradicate 100% of poppy production, they could do so in a matter of days. So what's stopping them? While the opium boom was incredibly lucrative, the marijuana boom was a rapid climb to unthinkable riches. Join us for the next episode on the rise of marijuana trafficking. This episode was written by Demoler. Post-production by Sharp Spoon Media. Our sources for this episode are Luis Astorga's El Siglo de Drogas, his essay, Drug Trafficking in Mexico, A First General Assessment, El Cartel de Sinaloa by Diego Enrique Osorno, La Cosa Nostra en México by Juan Alberto Cedillo, El Narco by Ion Grillo, and The Dope by Benjamin T. Smith.